Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 12. I have the passage on an insert as well. I will refer to some verses before that precede. Um, We have a pause in the Isaiah series because it's been my experience personally and corporately that people travel a lot during the summer. They could be missing a couple weeks, and um, I want to make sure that with that series to uh, have us there as a body as much as we can throughout it. And so I picked a, a shorter expositional series through the parables in the Gospel of Luke. Um, there are over 50 parables in the New Testament, um, 36 or so in Luke. I'm just basically taking the first several, so six total. And we have come to the parable that is known as a parable of the rich fool. Um, It's a topic that Jesus addresses quite a bit with his disciples, and we see it here showing itself, and so it's important for us, for sure. Um, The context, though, I'm going to start reading in verse 13 as it appears on your insert. But the context really helps, and I'll refer to it as we look at the passage closely. The context is Jesus telling some very heavy, heavy stuff, some instruction about hypocrisy and how people need to be careful. They're not found out to be hypocrites when the great revealing happens because God will know everything uh, that we have done or said in secret. And it's, I mean, say that, and I mean, all of us would be uncomfortable. You're going to do what? You're going to expose everything. And he's talking in serious terms about their need to consider their faithfulness to God, uh, their willingness to pronounce his name before men. He's preparing his disciples, and there's a crowd around listening as well. And it's, it's a heavy, heavy talk that's happening. And in the midst of this talk, this man comes from the crowd and he interrupts with what he says here. Follow as I read God's holy word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who has made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, there are many, many wonderful things in this life for us to enjoy, and we are grateful to you for these. At the same time, there is a devotion that we genuinely want to have for you because of what you have done for us in Christ. We see how precious Jesus is and how he has purchased us. He is our king. We love him. But Lord, we do become distracted, almost easily distracted with things that won't last, really don't matter. Lord, give us a time like this 
confronted with the words of our Savior to reassess and possibly make changes personally, corporately. Once again this morning, give us a glimpse of what is true and what to do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a couple features of our homes in our neighborhoods that cause me to pause. I've not been too many other places in the world, but I don't see either of these in many of those places. Garages on houses and storage units that you can rent. Not only that you could rent, you could have air conditioning in them to take care of your stuff when you're not there. Now, garages. Garages were designed to store your car. So, man, if you have a project car, that's okay. In the garage. I think that's what it's supposed to mean. Now, garages were to shelter your car, to protect them, take care of them, make them last longer. Garage is a walled, roofed structure for storing a vehicle or vehicles that is part or attached to a home or which is associated with an outbuilding or a shed. That's what it says in the definition. Storage units are garages, rows upon rows of them, often stacked a couple stories high. You can buy smaller ones. You could buy larger ones. They are for storing your stuff. Why? Because you don't have enough room in, it, in your garage, so you get a storage unit. And people will pay two to $500 a month, in some cases more, to store the stuff that they never use. They don't even look at it. In the garage, you walk by the stuff, but the storage unit, you can pay to not have to be faced with it. Now, I would argue that the presence of garages filled with something other than our cars indicates that we probably at least have a surplus of stuff or it wouldn't be in the garage. Storage units that are maintained for years. Probably too much stuff. I'm guessing that I'm poking at a lot of us and I think you know what I mean. This parable that Jesus tells us really strikes at the heart of the matter. It's not the stuff. It's the heart that seems to drive us to think we need the stuff. More money for more stuff. It's the heart, it's it's the greed, it's the covetousness that Jesus addresses. I know that it's one of those sermon topics that can cause irritation towards the pastor, but I know if you're irritated, it's not my fault. And furthermore, to let you off, I don't think we've parked my van, our van, in the garage more than 20 times in the last four years. So I feel your covetous pain. But it is one of those opportunities to assess based on something we look on and hear when Jesus talks to this man to be honest in our assessment of ourselves. Not too long ago, a month and a half ago, true story. I was in a hotel coming out with a friend and there was parked in the hotel next to us pulling out a hearse pulling a U-Haul truck. A U-Haul trailer. I saw it with my own eyes. I could not believe what, how could this, why would a purse, why would anybody in a hearse need what's in the U-Haul trailer? Now the truth is it was a late, uh, middle 80s model hearse. 
And so I think somebody just bought it and was using it kind of like as their personal camper and pulling their stuff around. But what a picture of kind of American society, right? A hearse pulling a U-Haul. We, we just like our stuff so much we think we can take it with us and we cannot. It's all going to burn. It's all worthless after we die. Or it's passed on to someone else for them to hoard. I mean, that's kind of what stuff is like for us in our culture. Nothing wrong with having things. I'm not saying that. Clearly, that's not the heart of what Jesus says. But what the man who asks the question reveals is what Jesus addresses, and that's where we have to ask God, the Spirit, to help us, convict us, if it's a point of focus we must have. The man is listening to the greatest teacher in the history of earth give a sermon. He's answering the most important questions of life and eternity. You can't make up a situation like this. So profound is he at his disposal. And what is on the heart of the man? Teacher! He stopped talking about the, the, the hypocrites and knowing everything that we ever did. Stop for a minute. i got to know something important. Will you tell your brother, my brother to split the stuff with me? So Jesus, being God, senses exactly the problem, and he goes to the heart of it with his story. And what we learn is, uh, for us, a great warning. This lust for money and stuff that can develop in any of us. Good things can become bad things when we lust after them more than God, or in a way that is more than God prescribes. The lust for money and stuff clouds our vision about what is most important in this very short life. It clouds our vision about what's important, but remember, it's in the context of a very, very short life, as this man found out in the parable. Now, let's, let's see the questioner's mindset, verse 13. He shows a foolish perspective about life when he asks the question, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, take that back. He doesn't ask a question. He just tells Jesus what to do. I mean, it's a request. He wants Jesus to be a judge and go tell his brother something. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, to appreciate the foolishness of this question or how it reveals what's most important in his life, what's clouding his vision, look back at verse 1 of chapter 12, just a few verses before the verses we have arrived at. In verse 1, here is Jesus in a most serious tone. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is the, the thing that Jesus rails against the most, it seems. Um, people outwardly acting one way, but inwardly something totally different. Total fakes, total frauds. And this spreads, and beware of this. The Pharisees do this, it will spread. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, it says in verse 2, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the, door, on the housetops. I mean, this is as profound and serious as can be. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after they have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I mean, people are worried about getting killed. Anybody would be. He's saying, don't worry about that. Worry about the one who can not only kill you, but cast you to hell. I mean, heavy, heavy stuff. Oh, this is not a light moment. 
Jesus is giving a message about eternity. It's a warning about who is the Lord of the soul. Jesus is saying, fear God. He's talking about God. He's revealing God. Verse 8, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of heaven. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Have you ever been teaching like a children's Sunday school class and you're in a real profound moment with the lesson and you're driving it home and all those, those cute little cherub faces are shaking their heads yes and, and you think you're driving home a point and then the hand goes up, Jimmy's punching me. Ugh. Now I'm not saying Jesus was exasperated like that because he's in providential control of this situation. But it must have felt like that for those who are on the edge of their seat listening to the Lord of the universe teach. And then a man says, Teacher, tell my brother to give me my half of the stuff. Now it's easy to mock the person because it does seem mock-worthy. But this is what's important to him. I mean, this is, this is eating him up. And he sees Jesus as someone important, someone with authority. Maybe he can help me with this gnawing problem I have that I can't get my stuff. Seriously? Have you not just heard what Jesus is talking about? Life, death, eternity, and you want your stuff. Now, this reveals a foolish perspective about life. One that sees stuff and money as more important than considering what is real, what is spiritual, what is eternal, what lasts. How much time do you think is wasted worrying about things instead of people? How fooled we are to think that any amount of money will bring us joy and happiness. And I know that in, this, in the church, we're going to say in response to that, we know that money doesn't really bring you happiness. But then why does my life effort or your life effort and your time commitments say something entirely different? Oh, I, I know that money will not bring me the joy. I'm striving after it. I, I know that. I, I know that. Well, then why does your accumulation of so much stuff depict a different set of values? Why are you so worried right now about something or some account? Why are you irritated that I'm talking about this? J.C. Ryle said, The more acres a man has, the more cares. The more his money increases, the more of his time is generally consumed and eaten up in thinking about it. Now, Jesus gives a warning before he tells the parable, which is, uh, he does this sometimes, but usually he'll tell the parable and then draw the connections. But here in verse 14 and verse 15, he gives an essential correction to the man, but really he's addressing the whole crowd. Look at the particular language as he warns about greed in what life is meant to be. Verse 14, he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator of you? Am I a mere civil authority just to judge in small claims court with you and your brother? I mean, is that what you think I am? Then it says, and he said to them, take care. Now, notice what it said. He said to him, man, who made me a judge? Verse 15, and he said to them, who's them? That's the crowd he was talking to, the crowd that got interrupted by this man's, this man's statement. And he said to them, using the man really as an illustration, and the question that he, that he asked or the statement he made and the foolishness he revealed, And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or greed, as it's translated in some versions. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Here I am talking about the mysteries of heaven, and this man's more worried 
about splitting stuff with his brother. Everybody who's hearing this, take care to see what's going on. That's what Jesus is saying. Take care. Because he must recognize how possible this is for us to get sucked up into this, to be clouded in our vision about money and stuff. Verse 14. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, we can be sure of this concerning Jesus when he speaks on this matter. Because everybody wants somebody's financial advice. Everybody wants to know, what did you do to make it or make your money or make your career, make your career so you can make your money and get your stuff? What did you do? And we, we look to people who have a lot of stuff and we think they're wise and they can help us. And they may or may not be from a, a scriptural, biblical standpoint. It's not at all to say somebody can't be a godly person and, and handle these things. We see what the issue is. Guard against covetousness. Grieve for these things. Things that drive us to gain more of this stuff. Now, Jesus, of all people to go to, the reason why he's the right one to speak on the matter is because all the stuff you have, the stuff we think we earn or made, in actuality, Jesus is the creator of that stuff. And I'm not going too deep on this. It's exactly true. So the creator of all the stuff has the right to tell us what the stuff is worth and what place it should have in our life. I mean, Jesus can speak to this. Um, Colossians declares it this way, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So every, this pulpit and the wood it comes from comes from trees that Jesus created. I mean, there's nothing that you can think of that stuff that Jesus did not create. So he can speak to this with authority. The man didn't realize he was asking the right person. The only person who can give him a good answer. I mean, your father it may have done well financially and with his stuff, but he is not so uniquely qualified to tell you about what life is all about in the relationship between stuff and life. Your childhood friend who got rich isn't uniquely qualified to tell you the relationship between stuff and life. Warren Buffett, no matter what his stock is worth now, is not uniquely qualified to tell you what life is about. He's not the first person you should be going to to find out how you should live and order your life related to money and stuff. Only one person can explain to us the the meaning of stuff and money. And unless those other people are taking their cues from him, we should be careful not to listen to them. The creator of all the stuff can tell us about the place it should have in our lives, or it could consume you. It could take you over. It could kill you. Verse 15, he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of of his possessions. You see what the Creator says. One's life, their existence, does not consist, it does not equal the abundance of his possessions. So even though we're tempted when we see somebody, how big is their house? What stuff do they have? That tells me what their life is. Jesus is saying that's not right. The accumulation of a person's stuff is, is not equal who they are what their life is. Mark Dever talks about materialism. Materialism is what we're speaking of. It's the the belief in materials. 
in things, in dependence upon it, reliance upon it, materialism. It's, it's a word that when used in its worst form means we, we worship material. We worship stuff. We live for the here and the now and the stuff. Mark Dever said it bluntly. Materialism is the stupid philosophy where everything is invested in what will eventually become nothing. Well, that's what we have before us displayed in the man, and it's certainly convicting for us as we consider what impresses us about people who are rich. It's the stuff they have. A good litmus test, I think, for us to test the healthiness of our perspective about greed and covetousness about stuff comes when we want something new or something that we don't currently have. How do you feel about it right now? I mean, just think of what it is right now that you can't wait to get on Amazon and order, eBay and order, or go to the store and buy. Again, nothing wrong with stuff. Um, but what's driving? I mean, are you more concerned about that than being in God's house and worship? I mean, is that really what you're stressed about, that Tony's going to go a little long and it's going to be a little less time for me to get whatever it is I want to get? It could be, possibly, that there's a problem if it's that consuming to you. Um, how much do we think about that item? It could be a car, could be a new pair of shoes, could be a piece of technology, could be video game, could be a certain piece of clothing. Um, do we think if we get it or when we get it, we'll be more relaxed? Then we can relax and, and we'll be okay because now we have it. Uh, do we think having it is more important than anything else that we're currently doing? It's just occupying our mind nonstop. Do we get irritated or defensive like right now when someone's challenging you about it? I love this kind of sermon because I know if you're irritated, you cannot blame me. Because if it's healthy, you're, you're not bothered at all by this. But if, if it's irritating, it's because the problem is yours. It's ours, all of us. I'm not just picking on you. Another possible litmus test. If Jesus was over in the corner near where the choir sits talking to a crowd and started developing and you knew it was Jesus and you got to run over and ask the thing that was most forefront of your mind, what would you ask? Because what we have for all time to see is what this man thought was most important when Jesus was there. Can you please tell my brother to give me my stuff? Really, that's the most important thing. A man who's homeless, you're going to ask that question of. Jesus, is not a place to lay his head? Clearly not that concern beyond what he needed about stuff. And that's what you think he'll be most concerned with is splitting your stuff. Now, the story that is told comes in verse 16, and it's very uh, vivid. And you know, as Jesus usually does, he doesn't just answer the concern of the man. He unpacks some layers that shows the whole of it to all who are listening, including us today, 2,000 years later. Verse 16 an illustration to show the folly of chasing after stuff instead of God. See the, the twist? He's going to talk about, don't just stop chasing stuff, chase God. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now I want you to see this. It doesn't say that the rich man produced plentifully. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. We like to pat ourselves on the back for our prowess with business in fruitfulness, but if we could get behind the scenes, we would recognize there is no fruitful person who is not given their fruitfulness by God. Even if you're smart and able to design things that do well, the smarts are from God. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. Wait a minute, hold on. I've got nowhere to put my crops. What would I just read? He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. The fact is, we probably have a lot more stuff than we really think we do. You know when we say, I'm starving? I say that all the time. Seriously? I mean, look at me. I can go a few days before I should, a few weeks before I start saying I'm starving. I don't have anything, or I need this, or my computer's old, or my car's old, or my house. Really? And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Key indicator when you read this, and I think you probably caught it. I, 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 me, 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 I, will, I. No reference to God. No reference to the needs of others. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and goods. In verse 19, this is the, the mindset. I'm going to build, I'm going to race towards this plentifulness so that I can then do nothing. I could be fruitless at that point. Well, he's only concerned about himself, so why be fruitful? At least why be more fruitful than he will need or want or thinks he needs? Does it ring a bell, the language, too? He'll chill, and then he'll say, Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It doesn't say chill in the King James or in this version, but it is what it is what it means. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Back in Isaiah, when God was was reprimanding the Israelites for their lax attitude towards him, the prophet Isaiah said, Behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, and drinking wine. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That language is in Isaiah. The man uses similar language. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Then Paul writes the same thing. If the resurrection is not true, he says, Jesus is not true, then we should just simply, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, the fool who's talking to Jesus in the the episode that we're reading, he misses something the other two in Isaiah and at least in Corinthians get. They eat and they drink and they die. Our guys, for, he's forgotten that part of this. Eat, drink, be merry, and rest. And so, but you're going to die. And if your attitude is all for self, and that's why you do everything, and you're, you're wrapped up in your own covetousness, your life will be demanded of you at some point. You know, what this man says is what the atheists say. Let's just do whatever. It doesn't matter. Do it for ourselves. It doesn't matter. I'm, all the, I'm the be-all and the end-all. In fact, verse, verse 19 is like, it's like a confession of faith in himself. And I will say to my soul, as if there's nothing else in existence, just me and my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The material world, that's all there is. But what does God say? God said to him, verse 20, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one. And here's, here's, the, here's the, the final catch. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The guy who was just wanting Jesus to get his half of the stuff from his brother. And Jesus unpacks a whole lot more. He unpacks what is so difficult for all of us. 
How was the man not rich toward God? His efforts in planting, growing, and storing took his time from other things that he could have been doing for God. That's one thing. Uh, His focus, though, was entirely on self and glorifying self, providing for self, worshiping self. I will store all my grain and all my goods and relax. He wasn't rich toward God in this way. He also kept for himself, and he was not generous toward others. His sole metric was how much he needed to be satisfied, at least how much he thought he needed to be satisfied, and that was it. It's the same thing when we are generous towards others. It's the same thing as being generous towards God. His hoarding was actually stealing from God. Really, as a response to this parable, how can we be rich toward God? That's what we want. Uh, We know this to be a problem. I think few people would deny that it's a struggle sometimes with regard to coveting things, wanting things, being greedy for more things. First off, most importantly, and I hope this is something that's driven home constantly as we read Scripture and as we live life together. First off, we are to make the pursuit of God our life effort and endeavor, if you will, in all that we do. And that includes our vocations. And we want this not just for ourselves, but for everyone we love. We want the pursuit of God. We want people to know the pursuit of God and knowing God. And this to be what your life is filled with and defined by so that it gives meaning to all the efforts that we partake in. All the gifts and abilities and resources you have are used to multiply for fruitfulness so that other people can see and praise God personally and by what they see. So it's, this is not any argument against fruitfulness or working hard or making money. It's about what we do it for. Why are we about it? What is the pursuit? And it's the pursuit of God. It's to know him better and to endeavor to see other people know him better. So if that's our first effort, then it will check us when covetousness rises. And it will also give us a bit of a guidance. And this is the thing. If it's about people, because why? People are eternal. They're the things that last forever. Your stuff does not. So our endeavors should be towards building people towards knowing God. So Our efforts and the way we spend money, put it that bluntly, should be, at least on the whole, not to say we don't have money for recreation or for fun or anything like that, but we should have such a priority laden into the resources we have that promotes other people, our families, our church family, beyond these walls, that they might know God. And so whatever it is we do that we are giving towards that in all the way God stewards us with the time we have, uh, the, the giftings we have, and the money we have. That's stewarded to us so that we can help other people, eternal people, because everybody's going to live forever somewhere. And let's spend our time and our efforts helping people know God better. And now, understand, your vocation is a calling. So you glorify God by doing your job well. Not just because you make money to give to church, but because you glorify God in showing um, the beauty of the work you do, whatever it is. It's designed by God. But see, the difference is the way I'm looking at it and why I'm doing it and then what's the purpose for it. And it will guard us against coveting money and stuff because it's not all about me now. It's about God's glory with his stuff that he's stewarding through us. Huge difference in how we, you could look, you have two people that outwardly, you might say, well, the same thing, but very different in what they're doing and how they're doing it. I was thinking about the two areas that are most uh, sensitive to us, time and money. Time and money. Yet in both of these areas, God gives us 
a gracious safeguard, if you want to put it that way. First, he designs into the created order the Sabbath. The idea of taking a rest from our labors so that we don't overload ourselves, we don't overwork. The Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Because we need it. We need the break. It's also a reminder that you don't have to work seven days for God to provide for you. Because he's providing for you. Even if you think you're working a 70-hour week and you're providing for yourself, God has provided for you. And he says rest so you don't break down. So the Sabbath is a great way for you to practice restraint so you're not overworking to overacquire. Rest for a day. Rest. But something else with regard to our money. At a base level, God provides for the tithe. Now, I think if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've been tithing, it doesn't impact your finances like it did when you started. When you start, it hurts. You're like, wow, 10% is a pretty good chunk. Now, in time, I really truly believe this happens in the life of a believer. You realize that's a pretty small amount compared to all that God's given. But just starting there is painful. But you know what it does? It's, it, especially early in my life when I saw this, I remember using an excuse that I was in college or I was in seminary. In seminary, of all places, I'm making excuses for why I wouldn't tithe. But I remember thinking to myself, uh, you know what? I mean, I'm barely, we're barely paying this bill. How are we going to do this? And when in obedience we did it, and I'm not saying it wasn't begrudgingly, God showed how he was providing all this stuff anyways. It wasn't even like all my, my uh, cleverness that was getting us to pay our bills. And, and the first check written to God's work started reordering, and it changed my covetousness. Now, I still struggle with greed, of course, but there's a certain setness in the household income, if you will, that's just going to go to this direction. It's not just because you all will figure it out, probably because the treasurer can tell you whether I tithe or not more than you. I mean, I'm the pastor, right? But there are other things I could be giving to in addition to my tithe, the things you learn. Point is, when I'm tempted to really just want to accumulate stuff or get more stuff, I, I'm checked by, my, by God's Spirit about how am I giving from the resources I have and all the ways that I can to build into people so they know God more. I think if we're more generous with God's work in the forms, the, the very worthy forms that comes, not just your church, other good ministries, it will help keep in check the covetousness that can well up in us and maybe overcome at times. I struggle with materialism. I have, uh, as long as I can remember, I always thought if I had more stuff, I'd be happier. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I remember thinking, boy, if I had it, I wouldn't have the problems I have. And now I have more money. And that's not true at all. It's way more complex, more challenging. Have you thought about some of these things and the ways to attack them? Not just feel guilty a little bit that we have too much stuff and walk out. But really, what could we do to make a difference? You know, I was thinking, it's kind of humorous. Um, pastors really don't like to preach about money that much because they don't want to be judged personally and it's uncomfortable and you might get mad at me. Too late, I've already said enough, so here we are. In that light, I was thinking about how unpopular things like debt reduction campaigns or like uh, capital campaigns are. People get pumped about when they, a building hasn't been built yet. They like to give to that. But then once it's up, they really don't want to pay for it as much. And then when you come in new to it, you think it's all paid for so you don't have to give, you know, to help with that. Um, that's just the reality of how things work. What I thought is, in our church, wouldn't it be a neat thing? I'm not sure it can really happen. Not a debt reduction campaign. Let's have a garage sale campaign. Now, I don't mean the weak little garage sale stuff most of the ladies get when they basically, you know, they sell their stuff in a garage sale, then they go get it back at someone else's garage sale. I mean, that doesn't happen in my house. I'm just saying, like, you know, that can happen. And so 
That's not what I mean by garage sales. I'm in serious trouble right now, I just realized. <laughs> Dial back, isn't it Father's Day today? I mean, the 19th, I was missing that day. any rate, I'm talking real garage sale. I mean, go in that garage, it's going to hurt. Go in that garage and think of the things that have been sitting there that you have not, that you keep, you bought, you pay too much money for it, so you think to yourself, um, I can't get rid of it, I spent too much money and it keeps sitting there. And you're not going to use it. And there's tons of stuff in our garages that are like that. Imagine if we all sold that stuff and gave it to debt reduction, paid off the last 1.5 million in the church, or a missionary, or some other cause that's promoting someone knowing God. Imagine if we went to our, how about Storage Wars fundraiser? You ever see that show? I mean, that's a great show. I love, even if it's fake, I still like watching the show. You know, they put little treasures in these storage units. But if we went through our storage units, I just think, honestly, if, if our church just sold our excess personally, not even tip, we would even dip into sacrifice. Just the stuff we just bought, but we are kind of embarrassed to even sell because we can't believe we bought it, and now we don't know what to do with it. If we just sold all that stuff, and I wonder how much we'd raise in one shot to pay off what we owe. Now, I grew up in a church where it was always mysterious about what they did with the money, and people were, were negative about it all the time, and for good reasons. Now, I'm not saying you like everything our church may do with it, but it's all above board for you, and you can see it. And so if you see it and you say it's responsible, then why not give towards it? Because we don't know what tomorrow brings culturally, what stability the church will have. I hope that when things get rocky in the culture, the church is strong and can withstand it more than we're worried about our own households. Again, I love this sermon because if it irritates you, it's not my fault. There's a lot of times I can irritate you, but this, this is the word of God, and this has to do with our view of money and stuff. That's all. That's the challenge. And as Christians, I know the spirit of God's working in you, and God loves you, and he wants, he wants Jesus to be your greatest passion, not money and stuff. And God loves you so much, he will make you incredibly uncomfortable until you recognize that. And I praise God for that, and I know he will never let us off the hook for that. Let us take care and be on our guard against all covetousness, for our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, which is always timely. Lord, I am